Good morning. <clears throat> today we are going through Hebrews, two chapters today, three and four, so get ready. Uh, it's, they're not super long, and so uh, because we are doing a parallel course with the morning message that Dan typically preaches, um, I'm trying to do in parallel with what he's doing. He'll be going through three and four today, and so I'm going to do the same, and I think they're related, and so it makes a lot of sense to do this. Um, I think what we should do is go through the text first because a lot of what I'm about to say won't mean a lot until we get into the text. Good morning. So I will ask for a volunteer this morning. Why don't we go ahead and we'll, we'll do um, chapter 3. We want to go ahead and read chapter 3, verses <clears throat> yeah, 1 through 19, please. All right. So all of you holy brothers and sisters who were called by God, think about Jesus, who was sent to us and is the high priest of our faith. Jesus was faithful to God as Moses was in God's family. Jesus has more honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Every house is built by someone, but the builder of everything is God himself. Moses was faithful in God's family as a servant, and he told what God would say in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are God's house if we keep on being very sure about our great hope. So it is as the Holy Spirit says, today listen to what he says. Do not be stubborn as in the past when you turned against God, when you tested God in the desert. There your ancestors tried me and tested me and saw the things I did for 40 years. I was angry with them. I said they are not loyal to me and have not understood my ways. I was angry and made a promise they will never enter my rest. So brothers and sisters, be careful that none of you has an evil, unbelieving heart that will turn you away from the living God. But encourage each other every day while it is today. Help each other so that none of you will become hardened because sin has tricked you. We all share in Christ if we keep till the end the sure faith we had in the beginning. This is what the scripture says. Today, listen to what he says. Do not be stubborn as in the past when you turned against God. Who heard God's voice and was against him? It was all those people Moses led out of Egypt. And with whom was God angry for 40 years? He was angry at those who sinned, who died in the desert. And to whom was God talking when he promised that they would never enter his rest? He was talking to those who did not obey him. So we see that they were not allowed to enter and have God's rest because they did not believe. Great, thank you. So last week, some of you were not here. I think we had a, a change in the way that we do this class that was really effective. And that is, I will have you teach me what you just read. Now I see the terror in your eyes. <laughs> I see the sweat starting to bead on your forehead. It's good. It's all good. Um, all of you that I see here today have been in this class for quite some time. I think you're ready. And, and you know, kind of the message I'm giving people is I want to replicate myself. And what I don't mean is Brian Freeman, because goodness gracious, that would be a horrible world uh, to have many of me running around. What I mean is to replicate uh, the ability for me to derive meaning from the scripture, um, to teach you to fish as it was. And if I can do that successfully, then it doesn't matter if I'm here uh, or not here. At some point, I won't be. Um, you know, hate to break it to you, everybody dies uh, or moves on or something like that. And I'm not saying this is some kind of impending change happening here, uh, far from it. But if I can teach you to derive meaning from the Holy Scriptures, then you can start to do what I've been doing for the past uh, many, many years. <clears throat> and so, what we're going to do today is have you teach me what you just learned. And, and it's going to be built on a foundation of the three questions we always ask, which Ken uh, was talking about in the very beginning. And I want to ask you that. Start with the three questions we always ask in this class. And then from there, go back to the text that we just read and you tell me what is the text trying to say. Ready? What are the three questions that we always ask of the text? <clears throat> Who's written to? That's one of them. Who was the audience? And <clears throat> when we say who was the audience, and I'll probably you know, make you want to throw up because I say this every single week, yes, I am talking about a specific audience that the author of the text, when it was originally written, was writing to. So they were probably writing to a specific person or group of people. And that is generally, yes, that's true. But what I'm getting at here is what? Who was the what kind of audience? Believer, unbeliever. Okay. What else? Are you talking, well, the Am I talking about a specific person, always? 
some books are written to a specific people. person. Yes. This wasn't. Exactly. So what I'm getting at here is, I want you to think, who was the kind of people that they were writing to? In the beginning, the first time it was written to someone, it was written to a specific group. But for 2,000 years now, it has been shared with people um, who are not the original audience. So I'm asking, who was the kind of people that this was written to? What kind of group was it written to? What are the other questions I ask in this class? Who wrote it? Why? <coughs> who wrote it? Same point here. Who wrote it is, yes. If we have a specific name that we think that's fine, in most cases we don't. And I, you know, I can't drive this point home enough. We really don't know who wrote most of the New Testament. We think we do, but we don't know for sure. Paul is the name of a guy who we are sure wrote some of it. But again, even though it was this guy named Paul or a guy named Saul, that's not the point. The question is what kind of person was Paul? Because then, and only then, can you start to derive real meaning from the text. I can tell you it was Saul of Tarsus who wrote it. That doesn't mean anything to you. <laughs> and, and you might argue with me. Oh, yeah, it's very important that I know the name of the person. It's not. It's not. And I know that it's hard for you to get past. And I know a lot of people have trouble getting past that. It doesn't flip and matter what the name of the person was who wrote it. What's important is who was Paul? Who was Paul? Pharisee, Pharisee. A Pharisee, a Jew. A Pharisee of Pharisees. Who else was Paul? Roman citizen. Say it again. A Roman citizen. A Roman citizen. Boom. Who else was Paul? He was very passionate. A passionate, zealous person. Now you're starting to get it. Now you're starting to get it. That's the kind of person who wrote the scripture that we have today. And who was he writing to? He was writing to people who were Christians who are Jews, who are non-believers, who are believers, people who are going through the first century and all of the trials and tribulations that were a part of that. What is the third question we ask in this class? Why? Why? Why was it written? Now let's, really quickly, <laughs> why is kind of the most important. And, and again, what I'm doing in this class is starting to prep you for where we're going here, which is, all scripture has a root conceptual meaning behind it. 100% of the text that we have today in the Christian Bible, which is the Old and New Testaments, has a root conceptual idea behind it. Not all of the text of the Old and New Testaments has a literal interpretation behind it. So what I'm going to start to train you to do in this class is to say, what is the real meaning behind what I'm reading? Because you will always have a root conceptual idea in which this text is based on, and that's what I want you to get at. And why was it written? Remember, folks, all of Scripture, and I will say this confidently, <clears throat> was not written because someone had nothing else better to do. <laughs> scripture was not written because someone on a Saturday or a Sabbath, um, because he wasn't plowing his field, or working in the marketplace, literally had nothing else better to do, so we said, oh, maybe I'll just write some stuff about God. <laughs> well, 2 Timothy 3.16 is God's breathe for instruction. Excellent. Building up, and I don't remember all of it. Excellent. Yes, Theonoustos, all Scripture is God breathed. Remember, Scripture is written for a very important reason, and, and all Scripture typically is written for a very, very important reason because something is happening at the time that the author has decided to put pen to paper or parchment or, or vellum or what have you and write the, these words. And so what we want to get at is what were the conditions of the period in which this was written that was so important that the author felt it was really important to write all of this down, okay? <clears throat> something was motivating these people to write it. Now, given those three questions, who wrote it, who did they write it to, and why was it written? Let's go back to Hebrews 3. Who wrote Hebrews 3? A Jew. Ah. Why do you say that? Who became a Christian. It's okay. they're, they're a Christian now. Yep. Originally a Jew became a Christian. How do you know that? Because they, in the previous two chapters and in this chapter, they discuss a lot about like Moses and the history of the Jewish people. I'm going to turn you into scientists. 
You don't know it. I'm turning you into empirical, quantitative thinkers who find evidence for the claims that you're gonna make in this class. And what Laura just did is exactly what I want you to start doing. Your tradition or your assumptions that you have about the word of God may or may not be valid. I will always challenge you to back up any claim that you make in this class with proof. And what proof I'm saying is either evidence from the text itself or evidence from the real world that supports it. In this case, Laura is right on. You can assume <laughs> that a Jew or a Hebrew wrote this because there's a title on this that says Hebrews. Guess what, folks? There were no titles on these books or letters when they were first written. This was, this was added decades, in, in most cases, hundreds of years later. Laura has now taken evidence from the text itself to support our claim. The claim is that the person who wrote this was a Jew or a Hebrew, at least in the beginning of their life. What else, what else can we take from this, this person? Who, what was the kind of person who wrote it? A leader. Ah, why do you say that? Well, it, if it, it had to be somebody that people respected, otherwise they wouldn't listen to the information that would have been kept. Ah, so it's more of kind of an assumption that this person is writing maybe some very direct um, uh, commands or exhortations, and thus we can, we can assume that this person must have had some kind of leadership position. Okay, I think it's valid. I think there's support for that. What else? I think they... Well, they know the Old Testament scriptures because they, they quote the scripture and then they explain it. So it sounds kind of like it's a sermon, you know, it's like yes. we're reading a passage of the Old yes. Testament and then we're explaining to you what it really means. Folks, people don't just close their eyes, flip through a bunch of stuff, say, okay, today I'm going to talk about Psalm 90. Oh gosh, that's creepy. We're going to talk. <laughs> <laughs> Oof. Okay. We'll talk about that later. Wow. That was weird. Um, Yes, it does happen. They randomly pick. But I think Laura, is, what is she's saying is excellent here. There's so much Old Testament scripture, and it seems to be woven so carefully into the, the text here. The person is an expert in this text, at least so familiar with the text that they can quote it and integrate it into their, their claim very eloquently and very smoothly. <clears throat> what else do you derive from this author? What's the mental state of this author? And I don't mean like they're in some kind of institution. <laughs> I mean, what is, what is likely happening? And remember I said with the why piece. There was a motivation of why this person was writing this. What is, what is the situation do you think is happening that motivated them to write this? People are calling into question whether Moses or Jesus was the greater person. So there was probably infighting amongst the Jewish believers Excellent. And, and that's part of the why. It seems as though there is some kind of controversy arising within the community of this author in which he feels motivated to respond to it. Let's, then let's back up real quick and do the number two. Who was it written to then? Jewish believers. Jewish believers. And when you say believers, what do you mean by believers? Followers of Jesus. Yes. These were Jesus' followers. And today, you would call them what? Christians. Christians. Yes, exactly. Christians. Or, or yes, <laughs> Hasidic uh, uh, Christians or, or Jews for Jesus, that kind of thing. Yes. Um, but, they, but they're followers of Jesus. <laughs> Let's then go back to the, to the why. Why was this written? I already heard one very important claim. There seems to be a controversy going on in this community about whether Moses or Jesus was greater. Why else was this written? Well, it's our old traditions mm -hmm. that we grew up with, yeah. and now we've got to change it and figure out ah. what, what traditions we need to leave behind. Yes. There has been a challenge to tradition. I'll pause there. Pause there for a minute. One of the things I want you to do when you interpret the Word of God is to look at it in terms of relevance to today. How can I, as a disciple of Jesus, apply what I'm reading here to the real world? What I don't want you to do is go home and say, gosh, wasn't that interesting, like a History Channel expose on World War II? Hmm. Oh, 
I can name some of the people who were you know, involved in the battles of World War II. No, that's fine, but that's not the point of why we're here. This is not entertainment. <laughs> this is not, um, gee, you know, the more you know kind of thing. Um, this is meant to build your relationship with Christ, to build you up as a disciple of Jesus, and then send you out into the world to do something with it, to have actionable faith the big topic we're dealing with in Hebrews 3 is this idea of exceeding the supremacy national heroes. Name some national heroes. And when you start thinking about who's a national hero in my mind, um, you know, if I were to poll people of certain groups uh, today on earth of who was the greatest blank, well, maybe I say greatest leader for your, your people. Um, you might get different reactions. If I ask African Americans, who was the greatest leader of your group of, of African Americans who ever lived? They might, and again, I'm just making this up so it may or may not be true, they might say Martin Luther King Jr. He's our hero. He embodied who we are as a people and spoke what we believe as truth to the rest of the world. If I were to go to the other side of the world, and to the Indian subcontinent and say, for modern Indians today, who is your greatest national hero? Who might they say? Gandhi. Mahatma Gandhi. Now again, <coughs> I know for a fact not all Indians think he's a great hero, but let's just for the sake of argument today generalize and say, Indians in general would say Mahatma Gandhi was our greatest national hero. He embodied who we were as a people. He believed the things that we believed and he tried to change the world through his actions. What if you were a student of history? And I ask you, uh, maybe a, a, a professor of literature, a professor of antiquities, and I say, who was the greatest conquering king who ever lived on the earth, who changed the earth more dramatically through his actions and his legacy than anyone else? I'm going to guess, and again, probably would be wrong somewhat, but right in other ways. I'm, I'm going to venture to say they would say Alexander the Great. Because that one man did more in literally 10 years of conquering the quote known world, and not just his success on the battlefield, which was unrivaled, and probably still is unrivaled in human history, but his lasting legacy of bringing Greek culture to the rest of the world. The fact that we have a Greek New Testament and the fact that probably I'd say 60 to 70% of all English words that you speak today are based on a Greek root means that Alexander the Great has literally impacted the world more than any human in history, probably. Now I will ask you as an American, who was the greatest leader in American history? George Washington. Right? You're, you see what I'm getting at here. You know, who is the greatest president? Well, maybe George Washington or maybe Abe Lincoln, right? <clears throat> now I want you to think for just a minute about the names I just said and those groups of people. Now, let's say you think George Washington was the greatest American, Mahatma Gandhi was the greatest Indian, et cetera, et cetera. What if I came to you and said now, guess what? <clears throat> I know you think George Washington was the greatest American who ever lived. <clears throat> I know you think Abe Lincoln was the greatest president, maybe, who ever lived. But I now have a person who came from obscurity, born from a nobody family, was a workman during his life, who never traveled more than 100 miles from his home, died a martyr's death, but he is greater than George Washington. He is greater than Mahatma Gandhi. He is greater than Martin Luther King Jr. I want you to think in your mind, what would be the reactions of an Indian? Or of an African American? Or of, you know, a student of history? If I suddenly say that your great hero, who you have a lot of evidence for, and I believe you, was your greatest cultural hero, but there's someone who's even greater. What do you think is going to happen? Well, but the um, like for George Washington, Martin Luther King is because of Jesus that they became who they are. 
And, and, and again, <laughs> d- divorce yourself for a minute from the fact that we're talking about Jesus who supersedes all. I want you to just say for a minute, let's say I have a, um, it, just make it up. Let's say for an Indian, I say I have a new Indian fellow who is even greater than Mahatma Gandhi. And I tell you the works that that person did. Or I say, I have an American who did even greater acts than George Washington, right? Well, what kind of reaction are you likely to face with my claim about that? I think it speaks to their immaturity as Christians, right? So, because like, to me, when I think about like whether Moses is greater or whatever, I'm like, of course not, because, and even when you're talking about Gandhi or whatever, I'm just like, no, Jesus is the king of all, right? Because of, you know, spiritual maturity. I think it speaks to, like, this is why they're having to talk to them, because their faith in Jesus is so um, just infantile at okay. this point. You so, know? yeah, I think my response would be, who is this person yeah. you're talking about? And prove it. Yes, that's what, that's what I'm getting at. And again, I'm not looking for a right answer here. Prove it. I, I'm going to say right now, there were times in the Jewish history, in the, the period leading up to the first century, um, we call the Hasmonean era. This was the period between the prophets. So after Malachi is written, or depending on your view of when the text was actually written, um, the period that we have as Christians between the Old and New Testament spans about a 400-year gap. Around 400 BC to, a, to about the first century, there's this gap in prophetic writing. Now, there were many Jews who said prophecy continued, and in fact, there were heroes that arose in Judea in the second and first centuries BC leading up to Christ who were even greater than Moses. And this is what I'm getting at with what, with what Ken is trying to say. You will face an audience that will say, wait a minute, Moses is our great hero. Moses is our great hero. What do you mean these other guys are, are even greater than him? And I think this is what I'm getting at, which is suddenly you challenge a people to say they have, they have grown up their whole life saying Moses is our hero. And now you're saying this other guy is a, is a greater hero. I think you encounter resistance. You encounter what you would, you would expect. The Jews killed like every prophet in between like <laughs> Elijah like, and, you know, like they, yeah, they're not very... But as Christians, we need to know that who Moses is and explain that Moses <coughs> was modeling what Jesus would be doing, but Jesus did it in a better, greater, more, better way. Mm-hmm. Or even Gandhi, he just he did, said some incredible stuff, he's an incredible man, but Jesus was able to take what yeah. he says to a more perfect manner. I've led you astray. I want you to take Jesus out of the equation for a minute. Don't even think about the word Jesus <coughs> or Jesus Christ or him as the Messiah. Completely, don't, don't think about that for a minute. That's hard. Think about the greatest sports. Let's let's take another example here. Who is the greatest athlete of the 20th century? It'd be based on your birth. Say it again. It'd be based on your birth because that's yeah. the time frame that you put ah. things in. So somebody yes. 50 years old is probably going to say Michael Jordan to somebody yes. who's 25 is going to tell you it's yes. LeBron James. Here it is. Here it is. Now let's say... I say, let's say Michael Jordan is, you think Michael Jordan is the greatest athlete of all time. Now I tell you, guess what? There's this new guy, and he's really good at basketball, and now I'm telling you he is even better than Michael Jordan. What kind of visceral reaction are you likely to face from someone who is deeply rooted belief that Michael Jordan is the greatest of all time? Probably. Anger. What else? Resistance. Resistance. What else? Argument. Argument. Proof. You see what I'm getting at. That's what I'm getting Show at. Show me the stats. Show me the stats. And, and more likely than not, you're going to get, I'm not going to believe what you say no matter what. Now, what era do we live in today? The social media era, where literally everyone has decided to take a freaking side on every bloody matter and die on that hill, no matter what that issue is. <laughs> Eating grapes. Right? Wearing sunscreen. Literally find any issue that human beings can argue over and they will fight to the death about it. This is what I'm getting at. That, de- that your, your human nature is that you will resist at all attempts any argument to the contrary of what you have grown up to believe. And it goes for Christians and non-Christians. So now, that's, that's what I'm getting at here. Now we can add Jesus into the equation, okay? Now we can come back to Jesus. Here we're talking about Moses, the greatest prophet 
probably in the, in the Jewish history. Remember the prophets, you know, the prophets brought the truth of God, but who was it when the Jews were worshiping every Sabbath and celebrating their Passover every year? Who was it that they were thinking of? They were thinking of Moses. They were thinking of the law. Okay? Thinking of the law and Moses are inseparable. They, they are equivalent to a, to a Jew, to an Orthodox Jew. The law is Moses, and Moses is the law. Now you've got someone who's coming to you saying, guess what, Moses wasn't even as great as this guy. And guess what, your law has been superseded. But then I think that goes back to their spiritual immaturity because they, it, since they become Christians, they know that Jesus is the actual Son of God. They didn't have anything to base maturity on at that point. Right. They just, that I'm was like, what they knew. Until you can't point. say like, oh, here's the Son of God and here's Moses. Like, the actual Son of God, I think, is... But what if I told you he was the Son of God? What is someone who has been a staunch <coughs> Jew their whole life likely to tell you? They're sons of God. Yeah. And who is the real Son of God? Moses. That, that's what they were, you know. The thing is, huh? where did Moses get all his direction from? Mm -hmm. Is were they almost worshiping Moses instead of worshiping God? Yes. And, you know, yes. Moses was just yes. a servant for God. This is it. I think, um, I think he goes several times, he talks about their rebellion from the past and that they, you know, when God gave them messages, they, they rebelled against it. And they even rebelled against Moses at one point. Yeah. And I think that really what they're being reminded of is every time God tells you something, you guys do this. Don't make the same mistakes you've made in the past. Don't reject God's word because you don't want to believe it. Because it talks about hardening their hearts and it talks about the rebellion from the past. I think he, they're, instead of just saying Jesus is better than Moses, they're trying to say, you know, this is God speaking. This is God regardless and you need to quit worrying about the who the man is in front of you so how do we let's 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 follow that Lori what evidence does this author give that Jesus is greater than Moses let's look at, at chapter 3 verses 1 to about 6 what is the analogy that this author uses to demonstrate his point builder. A now we're getting at it so he's going to use the example of a builder and a house in his analogy what is the house? It's God's house. It's God's house, but what is his the house? house? Is Moses. Temple. The a temple. Is it? Do you really think that this author is talking about a physical structure, folks? No. What is he talking about? Well, I thought for Moses' side they'd be talking about the tabernacle or something like. That. Which is a representation of what? Of heaven. Of heaven. Of God's of God's domain, right? That is accurate. But again, folks, I got to divorce you from the literal here. This author is not talking about a physical structure. Who is he? What is the house of God to this author? Oh, God, Jesus. Say that louder. The church. Who is the church? Believers. You. He is talking about you. The house of God is not a physical structure. I cannot emphasize that more, people. The house of God is you. It is a community of believers. In this author's estimation, who then was Moses? A servant. Ah, servant. A servant. What does a servant do? Serve. Serves. He serves. I don't know what I'm drawing here. Maybe he's drawing dinner. I don't know. Maybe he's drawing drinks. He or she does what the master says. Ah, there we go. There we go. You got it. He cleans the house. Is a servant a lowly, in this metaphor, a lowly, insignificant person on the bottom of the totem pole? No. 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 This, guess what? <laughs> This is a position of esteem. This is perhaps the most important position that you can have. The servant. Who was Jesus? The son. The servant. Jesus was our servant leader. A position of authority and dignity and respect and yet humbled to serve the house, which is the community of believers. Who then is the son of God, in this case, the Christ? He's the builder of them. Yes. Yes. So here we have, and I don't want to draw Jesus. I'll just draw the cross. <laughs> the builder, right? 
the builder. Is the builder more important than the servant? Mm -hmm. You better believe it. Is the builder the house? No. no. Yeah. For all of you pantheism people who believe that God is the structure that he makes, you're dead wrong. And this author is refuting that. God is not the house. God is the builder of the house. He is the builder of a community of believers. And thus, what is the hierarchy or pecking order now? First to be last and last to be first. And so who is first here? Who is the supreme authority? Christ, the community, or the servant? Christ. Christ is the supreme authority. And now you see, folks, how this author is trying to make a very literal case. Again, this is not a physical structure. He's trying to use a literal metaphor to, to explain an abstract idea. And again, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hit this many, many times going forward. The author has a, a, a conceptual idea, a figurative idea he's trying to express through a, through a physical um, example. That's a parable. That's a parable. That's only the first part of this great chapter. That's the first part. Let's, what, 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 Comments do you have before we go to the next section of three? Well, it's neat that um, shows the, the much bigger, better plan that he was able to. God has a plan from the back. He had Moses come ah, yes. as a model of yes. the Christ, and it goes back and forth. And, and it's great in the study. The deeper you keep going, yep, the more awesome it is. What else? You don't have a house unless someone builds it. Oh, that's so <laughs> so that part. What do you expand that? What do you what do you exactly do you mean? Because I think I, I so understand. it can be physically like mm -hmm. literally there wouldn't be a house <laughs> if Jesus hadn't built it. But it also is you wouldn't have a community. You wouldn't even have Christians if Jesus hadn't came. Yes. And Moses wouldn't exist if <clears throat> Jesus, you know, didn't build the house either. So yeah. it's <clears throat> pretty amazing to me that God has trusted me to serve to represent hmm? him as the builder. I love it. I mean, that puts, puts you know, there's like, I'm in this lowly servant place, yet highly esteemed in the matter of that he's chosen me to do this. I love this. Well, Moses watched God do these wonderful things. Jesus did these wonderful things. Jesus did the miracles, did all those things. Mm -hmm. um, but he was still serving the <laughs> Father. Ah, okay. And he served us. Okay. And he serves us. Mm -hmm. And that's great. That's true. I think, you know, just focusing here on the beginning of chapter three, the focus is more on the, the, the builder and his supremacy over <coughs> the house and over the servants. And I think that's the point here. I want to talk about the second half of three, which is about this idea about warning of unbelief. But I do believe that... Um, <laughs> Bless their hearts, the, the Middle Ages uh, uh, scholars who broke the, the books up into chapters and verses probably did a disservice to us here because I think they, they put an artificial break that shouldn't have been here. The second half of chapter 3 really flows right into chapter 4, so let's read chapter 4, and then we'll, kind of, we'll, we'll talk about both at the same time. Who would like to read for me chapter 4, verses 1 to 16? Here, um, if you're going to do that, can you take the mic for me, please? Thank you very much. <laughs> Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news fail to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, 
Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by, that, by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Thank you. Who is the audience of chapter 4? And what are they going through? It's the Jewish people that are still trying to perfect the law. What else can you derive from them based on this? What's happening in their community? They don't think that the rest for God's people is still coming. They think that it's okay. happened. Yeah, okay, that's really good. So they think, say that again, they think it's already happened or it's, it's not coming anymore? They think that it already happened, I think. Okay. We'll say that. They think the rest already happened. What else? Maybe they missed it. Maybe they missed it. Okay. <clears throat> what is, I'll throw you a bone here. What, is, what does verse 7 say? What is, what is David saying? Today, if you hear his voice, do not what? Your so what do you think is happening in the community? I'm, I'm guessing they're they're feeling a lot of judgment and yeah. said, you know, we don't we don't need that. I don't like being judged. Okay. Well, if you go back to chapter three, yeah. uh, verse thirteen, mm -hmm. you know, he's like, help each other, so none of you will become hardened because sin has tricked you. There we go. And now you're getting. Um, then he's saying that you know we need to keep the sure faith we had in the beginning. So you're right onto it. This is it. This is exactly it. This community is facing believers who may have been originally attracted to the gospel message, maybe superficially. I you know this surprises a lot of people. Christianity the first century was the thing to do. <laughs> I know it sounds weird. It was the cool thing to do. There was a huge number of people that were drawn to Christianity because it was novel. It was in some ways subversive of leadership. And a lot of their friends were doing it, so they did it. A lot of people joined Christianity in the first century because it was cool and it, and it was shiny. And guess what? Once they got into it and they were challenged with the truth of the gospel, what happened? There was unbelief. There was falling away. There was people that, look, right here, you just said it, Laura. And, and this is back in 3, 3.13, but encourage one another daily so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And if we have come to share in Christ, if we hold firmly till the end in confidence we had at first, that is exactly a representation of the people. They had confidence. They believed with all their heart, this is the way. And then it started to become very apparent what the way is. <laughs> and they got freaked out. Like, but, but we'll still, you know, Moses is still... Moses is still our guy. I, you know, all this law stuff, I'm still going to you know, follow the Levitical laws. Um, I'm still going to go to synagogue. and, and, and Ex Expecting yeah. God's wrath if they didn't. Ooh. Yes. But th that was a new concept yep. to them was yes. grace. And I mean, it says in the end here, so that you read. Therefore, let's approach the throne of grace with confidence. Oh, my gosh. Well, Tell me, Ken, in the first century, did you approach the throne of a leader? You didn't get to generally. You didn't get to. No. 
And if you're not, it was because you were being let in by somebody. The throne is not something you approach in antiquity, much like today, <clears throat> without fear and trembling, or because you were ordered to do so, and even then you're probably in big trouble. <laughs> so this is great. You're totally getting it now. You're getting it. Who was the kind of people? What was their situation that they were in? Fear, unbelief, falling away. They were not persevering. Then you go into chapter 4. This idea of a Sabbath rest that's being proclaimed again. For who? Who is Sabbath rest being proclaimed for? The Jews. <coughs> Everybody. Everyone. Man. Everyone who what, though? This is, you've got to be careful here. It's not, it's not necessarily... <coughs> yes, a promise of Sabbath rest is possible for everyone. Who is going to get Sabbath rest? Followers. Who do what? It says Service. in verse 3, we who have believed are able to enter and have rest. Here we go. Here we go. People who have a living, active faith, which you can call belief, who what? Persevere. Folks, those who tell you all you need to do is hear the gospel and you're saved, well, that's refuted by Scripture. That's refuted by 4 uh, verses 2 and 3. Just having the gospel preached to you is not, I repeat, not enough for you to have salvation. Further, just because you got baptized and you said, yeah, I'm all in, and I go to church every week, again, does not mean you are saved. The author of Hebrews chapter 4 is saying what? What does it take to truly be saved? What is the evidence that you've truly been saved? Turn from your wicked ways. So that implies obedience. Boom. One. Obedience. What else? You have to, it says you have to hear it and accept it. You have to hear it. <laughs> and accept and here's where a lot of people get get hung up when you say accept it what do you think that means for the author of hebrews submission submit to yep yep what else i think i think i in my mind i have always made it a heart thing like Yes. They're not judging our actions as much as our heart, where our heart is, and if our heart is soft and acceptance yep. of it. If it doesn't change you, you need to question. Oh, this is big. This is big. <clears throat> Yourself. You have been changed. I cannot emphasize that enough, how important it is to realize when I say to be saved, to be a, a saved believer of Christ, you have to be changed. Mm -hmm. We talked about this last week, about the fact that Jesus didn't actually call his disciples brothers, who he said, my brothers and my mother are who? Those who do the will of my father. He did not call his disciple apostles brothers until after the resurrection. Something in them changed just like something in Jesus changed. This is not, I've decided to start going to church once a week, folks. It's not. Your heart has changed. You are absolutely right here. Your heart has changed. Something fundamentally has, about Rodney Edema has changed, or Dan Custis. And now, it's expressed through what? Fruit. Fruit, yes, yes, expressed. And, and when we say expressed through fruit as a Christian, what do we mean? Does it mean um, tomatoes and, and, and <laughs> strawberries and delicious apples? Well, they the are delicious. That's not what we mean. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Self-control <laughs> is what? Our, our works, our <clears throat> service. This is so hard. And I'm going <clears> to <throat> tell you right now, humans hate paradoxes. It, in some ways, this is a paradox, <clears throat> and it's not. If your heart has truly been changed and you are continually obedient to the word of God, your actions will demonstrate that. And what does the author of Hebrews say? Is it a one-time action? I can get baptized once and I'm good. No, what does it say? What does it say? Where, where is this? 
believing heart to none of you hardened. Hold firmly till the end. He's saying here continually. I want you to continually encourage each other. Continually. It's an ongoing act. This is this is active. This is ongoing. This is continual. I will know, and again, this is not about judging whether you're saved or not. I don't know if you're saved. You, you probably know. I'm not going to judge anyone whether they're saved or not. I am going to judge myself and say, well, if I truly think I am saved and I have been transformed every day, my actions are going to demonstrate that. I'm going to forgive my enemies. I'm going to help the poor. I'm going to be reading the word of God every day to know more about what my master wants me to do. Now you start to see it. And for those people who follow that path, here we are. For those who have an active living faith, can't stress that enough, active living faith, you will have what's called the Sabbath rest. This word is not used anywhere else in the New Testament. Sabbatismus. <clears throat> a rest that God has promised that he himself took. And, and you know that it hadn't happened yet. You know, you can say, oh, well... Moses or his people, Joshua, got that Sabbath rest. Well, if that's true, if that's true, then here, this, this reference in four, so I declare an oath on my anger, they shall never enter my rest, that's from Psalms. That's from David. Even in the time of David, that Sabbath rest that had promised still had not come. So all this business about Moses, it hadn't been fulfilled yet. It hadn't been fulfilled yet. When does it get fulfilled? Jesus. Well, it says here on 13, um, the encouragement, it says to do that for each other every day, to <coughs> encourage each other because yep. as believers, that's what, can we, when can we be led astray is when we, Satan isolates us and we wander off. That's why we I as believers this. need to encourage each other. How many people have seen uh, you know, video maybe on YouTube or something of the lions <coughs> who will go after their prey, maybe a gazelle or, or you know, wildebeest, what have you, I don't know. They don't go after the herd. Who do they go after? Stragglers, the, the children. Folks, your children are targets of Satan who prowls this world like a lion. The weak, the slow. And I don't mean weak like they're physically weak. What do I mean by that? Weak spiritually. Spiritually weak. They believe anything they read on social media. <clears throat> they believe whatever they see on the news. Oh, okay, right? Those are the targets of Satan. And guess who else is a target of Satan? <laughs> Anyone who does the will of the Father. All right? And so this is exactly it, Tim. This is exactly it. If you're not encouraging your Christian brothers and sisters daily, look, you may think I got it all together because I'm up here preaching at you every week. It's not. I need encouragement just like you do. I need just as much, maybe more. Our, our guidebook is obviously the Bible. Yeah. And what's it say about the Bible? The Word of God is living and active. It's not a storybook that, Thank you. you know, yes, it has good stories in it, but it has, helps us each day as we're doing as well. Living and active. I heard about a little two-year-old one time. His, the mom was had a headache, and she was laying down on the couch. And his little, at two years old, they're talk, starting to talk a little, but not a lot. And look at her, but he was a little boy. And he said, God, Mama, Allie, amen. And if I remember correctly, her headache went away. Kudos to that parent or parents teaching that little child that young. I, I, I think that's great. And it illustrates exactly what I'm, you know, what I think the Word of God is saying here is that if you're doing your job, <clears throat> continually encouraging your fellow believers, which could be your children, could also be your friends, your family, your coworkers, whoever, you will start to see fruit, and you will replicate yourselves. And here I am back to the very beginning of what we talked about. Replicate yourself, right? If the Word of God stops with you, and you're not replicating yourself as a disciple, then it's hard for me to understand that you had a living and active faith. Look, you don't have to go out and invite 10 people to church and 10 people show up. That's not what I mean here. What I mean is that your daily devotion and obedience to the Word of God you are actively trying to make disciples of Jesus. Look, you know, the, the statement that the, the church is one generation away from extinction is true. There is nothing that says that there is anything automatic about what we do here, that 
it's been 2,000 years, and 2,000 years from now, there'll still be a church. There won't, unless, <laughs> unless we, the servants, and the community of believers are continually trying to replicate ourselves, make new Christians, make new disciples. I've talked a lot. Tell me what you think of all this. I, I think um, I made a connection recently. So, you know, with my helping um, survivors of abuse, um, my counselor helped me make a connection between that and a lot of the 12-step programs. Obviously, an abused person isn't addicted to a drug or whatever, but they're almost addicted to that lifestyle. And I think as Christians, we were addicted to sin. And mm -hmm. I think that the 12-step program still fits. And the last part of that program is making amends and going out and helping others okay. find their way. And I think that that's the piece that's kind of missing is the going out and helping others find their way. Love it. I was just thinking when, like Tim was talking about encouraging others and, and you and um, it just was making me think about COVID and how mm -hmm. Satan has really used this to mm -hmm. isolate people yep. and like to discourage Christians. And there's a reason why God, or, you know, I think it's Paul in yep. the scripture says, don't give up the habit of meeting together because God knows it's so crucial that we need to have our souls fed <clears throat> by fellowship with each other and to just have encouraging with each other mm -hmm. and just to have a time even how brief it is mm -hmm. to like hear his word and you know be encouraged by that and so i think we should use that <laughs> to make sure that we encourage each other you know it doesn't take a whole lot to do that you know it could just take a minute you know but it can really help sustain people you know through that day so what else in that passage you're referring to uh, Hebrews but he says let us hold hope hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he has promised he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds by not forsaking the meeting I mean if I'm sitting at home watching online I'm not going to do much stimulating you guys to good deeds well, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week.